Hi, I'm Anna Marie Cox, and I want to know if you're familiar with the scientific precept known as Occam's Razor. Hi, I'm Daniel Dresner, and I'm going to travel 26 light years to commit suicide? Welcome to Space the Nation, where we look at science fiction through the lens of world systems theory and false vacuum decay. Today, we'll be talking about <laughs> contact. In the next few weeks, we'll be talking about Train to Busan, The City We Became, Demolition Man, Vast of Night, and then something by Robert Un Heinlein. Un untitled Robert Heinlein Project. <laughs> We're going to toss that into the into the Discord, I think. Yes. I don't want to be responsible for picking it, I think. That's the main thing. We want to do a cannon fodder, but... People have strong feelings about this guy. So mm -hmm. we'll just go with what the Discord wants. The Discord is a place where our patrons hang out. And you mm -hmm. can become a patron of this show by going to patreon.com slash space the nation. What are some other things people can can do to help the show out, Dan? Well, you know, a great way to support the show and which absolutely costs you nothing, I would add, is to rate and review the show. Also to tell your friends and neighbors about the show. Maybe suggest that they become patrons. Yeah. Um, also, you can contact us, of course, on social media. You can reach us via Twitter. I am at Dan Dresner, and she is at Anna Marie Cox. You can tell us how much you love the show. You can make suggestions. You can correct us even on the few occasions that we're wrong about something. Not so few. I know. It happens. I mean, every once in a while. Yeah. So, Dan... Uh, what have you been up to lately? Anything <laughs> anything interesting? Got got, Anna, got got a lot going on? What's up? I don't know if you're aware of this, Anna, but there's a war going on <laughs> in a part of the world that I used to live in, and uh, there's a lot of economic sanctions involved, and I have some area of like expertise in this, so, you know, been thinking and writing a lot about that. But yeah. I will say, the other thing that's been nice, I don't know about you, because I know that Texas is like pretended that the pandemic has been over for for months at least up here the mass mandate finally dropped and so like yesterday i went to a cafe and sat and read and like it was it was actually i think possibly the closest that i felt to pre-pandemic because there were annoying people talking on their phones and there were other people you know that were just quietly reading and we were all staring at the annoying person talking on his phone so like it reminded me of, of the pre-pandemic times yeah, we in Austin, which is a little different from Texas, also just dropped the mask mandate. Um, we're now at like stage two or level two COVID, which means the you know rate of infection has gone down enough that people who are vaccinated can walk around without masks. And yeah, that's just in time. I'm sure it's a coincidence that South by Southwest is happening right now <laughs> as well. That's probably just fortunate, I'm guessing. You oh, know? yeah, I'm sure it's just a coincidence. <laughs> coincidence yeah. it always makes me sad though because as listeners may or may not be aware two years ago when the pandemic was about to start Anna and I were supposed to share a stage on South by Southwest yeah. to talk about the toddler in chief and I would I've never been to South by Southwest and that was the first time I was going to go and I was super stoked about it and of course did not happen you will come to South by Southwest eventually Dan everyone does so. it's just part uh, it's, it's part of nature's course eventually ah, everyone comes to South by okay Dan why are we talking about contact today Anna, how do I put this? I like to think of us occasionally as like drug addicts who have perhaps done too much <laughs> of uppers or too much of downers. And there are ways in which we need to even the fuck out. So first there was the intensity of the last season of The Expanse, followed by the very deep silliness of Emma Carey, <laughs> which, which we enjoyed immensely, followed by the garbage fire. Yeah, I said it. Garbage fire of Ministry for the Future. Maybe, just maybe, 
the competent earnestness of 1990s Robert Zemeckis will even us out. How'd that work out, Dan? What do you think? I actually think it worked out pretty All well. Right. I mean, I, I don't, I didn't love this film and I think, I, I think I liked it a little better than you did, but, and I did not like the ending and we were going to get to that, but it was soothing, I guess would be the way to put it. I feel more even. Yeah. <laughs> that's, a, that's a funny way to put it. Yeah, sure. Yeah. It was soothing. <laughs> it was, it was like taking a warm bath. Like, <laughs> yep. I'll go with that. Sure. <laughs> Contact the slow jazz of sci-fi. <laughs> the smooth that, jazz of sci-fi. It, it is. It is the smooth jazz of sci-fi. I am completely with you there. It is totally the Herb Albert of, of sci-fi. <laughs> Except yeah. I'm trying to think. Oh, no, it's the Kenny G. It's the Kenny G. Kenny G. It's totally it's the, the Kenny, Kenny G. of sci-fi. And you know what, Anna? There are times where you're just in the mood for Kenny G. So, yeah. you know, I'm Maybe not that was my problem. That. I just wasn't in the mood for Kenny G. That could be it. But speaking of the comfort of 90s nostalgia, man. Uh-huh. Um, yes. What's your previous experience with Contact? So I don't think I saw Contact in the movie theater. I, I remember three things about it. First, I remember actually being excited about it because Jodie Foster was like a leading, like a, a megastar of the 1990s, and she did not make many movies in the 1990s. Yeah. Like it would take two years for her to actually come out in a film. So anytime there was actually a new Jodie Foster film, I remember being pretty stoked about it because she's a good actress and normally she had pretty good taste in projects. So I wanted to see that. I remember watching the movie and... Kind of having the same reaction, I think, maybe a little liking it a little better, but like thinking it was long and, and <laughs> you know not quite what I was I was looking for. And the other thing I remember at the time was the controversy over Bill Clinton, because I mm-hmm. think this was the first movie to really there were examples before this, but this was really the first movie where like Bill Clinton actually has a supporting role in it because they spliced in footage from him. And at various points in the film. So rather than sort of using a fake president, they actually pretended it was in the Clinton era. And apparently they didn't give the Clinton White House a heads up at all, which is a little surprising. But like, I don't think they no, knew this I, was coming. Well, I, that didn't come up in the story behind the story. OK. The story behind right, the be story says that they actually had cooperation from oh, that's interesting. staff. Because, okay, they wanted wait, wait, wait. It, because also they show the it, it looks it's the real briefing room. Like, yeah. And, yeah, and yeah. they do a pretty good job of, like, when they cut to the scene of the people standing to the side. Yeah, yeah. No, looks it looks like the real briefing room, you know. Have you ever been in the real briefing room, Anna? Of course I have, Dan. Okay, I have too. And the thing, like, the, what it's always tiny. Everyone's, it is, yeah. Yes, exactly. It's like a broom closet. It is incredibly small. It's maybe, like, there's, you know, eight theater chairs across, something yeah. like that. And then maybe, Tops. like, 12 back. And it's also like a low ceiling. Yep. It is easy to feel claustrophobic in that room yeah. is the way I would put it. And then have you ever been to the reporter's warren behind it? I have not, actually. Those are, that's even, it's the same height ceilings and it's like all these little tiny cubicles. It's like, you know, it's like cut up from the basement that used to be the swimming pool and like. Right. That was Jerry Ford, I think, turned it into yeah, the, yeah, uh, yeah. the press. Yeah. So anyway, there's some weird faithfulness to reality in the movie. <laughs> like, yes. They pick and choose their moments to cross with reality. Well, let me put it this way. In much the same way that like a Roland Emmerich film apparently takes the destruction scenes very seriously. Yes. Like we have to make sure that the CGI looks absolutely true to life. Right. But then everything else is bonkers. I think contact in some ways is similar in that they do like some of the aspects of the politics actually I thought were pretty good, despite the bonkers nature of some of the rest of the film. Yes, that's a very good way to put it. I mean, a lot of it is bonkers. I remember, I think I liked it. Mm -hmm. I don't know. 
I don't know if I really remember. I didn't have negative feelings about it. And I do kind of have negative feelings about it on this second watch. <laughs> um, I remember it being kind of a cultural phenomenon for sure. Like that, yeah. I it, you know, it did very well. Yeah. And this is also a movie that, again, like it's a basic cable film. And that yes. this was a movie that lived on yes. on TNT and TBS in USA at infinitum because it's the perfect way. It, there's not a lot of cursing in it. It's like the perfect movie that you can put on basic cable yeah. at the time. Yeah. Uh, Dan, we have to come to our Discord suggested section, which I have come to love. Chekhov's What's It? Uh, mm-hmm. What is your Chekhov's What's It for contact? Chekhov's What's It for me is easily Young Ellie's drawing of Pensacola, which I did not remember from the first time I watched it, actually. So, like, the, fir- the when I see this, it's like, oh, yep, we're going to see those palm trees later. I didn't realize that it was a callback to that specific palm trees until this viewing. Like, the, yeah. the weird one that's like leaning over the water. Right, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, it, yeah. Similarly, I say it's uh, Chekhov's dead dad. You know, like, <laughs> pretty obvious one there. Yep, that's fair. Which leads us to, naturally, the story behind the story. So, Anna, I assume nerds were heavily involved in the making of this film. <laughs> yeah. There's a lot of backstory to this story, but I will endeavor to keep it as telescoped as the timeline of Ellie's research in this movie. <laughs> Can you present this like S.R. Haddon? Yes, yeah. Yes, Our fans will probably already know that Carl, who is you know, the film is dedicated to, is Carl Sagan, uh, Space the Nation patron saint Carl Sagan. Mm-hmm. And they also may know that Carl Sagan was the author of the book that the movie is based on, but no, they would be wrong. The mm. screenplay came first. Mm. He started work on the screenplay with longtime collaborator and eventual third wife, Anne Druyan, who was a television producer he met at a dinner party at Nora Ephron's. <laughs> Which is one of the many ways that this movie is a weird time capsule of 80s, 90s <laughs> popular culture. Like, don't you agree? Like, it's, yes, it's, it, yes. it just, it somehow just has so much in it that seems like, oh, yeah, that happened. You know, that's the way I, we used to think about stuff. Let me put it this way, Anna. I think one of the reasons I might have liked it a little better than you is that I, I did have some 90s nostalgia watching this yeah. film. The 90s was a good decade as far as I was concerned. So, you know, well, that might be why I'm, I'm feeling that way. The other way that it's a weird time capsule is that one of the first projects that Drew and Sagan worked on together was the Voyager Interstellar Message Project, which mm-hmm. is a literal time capsule, you right. might recall. Andrian yeah. was actually one of the people responsible for picking the music on the oh. gold record that's on Voyager yes, that plays on Voyager and yeah. apparently she was one of the people that was really passionate about having Johnny be good be one of the songs <laughs> you know what good for her yeah. that's a good song it yes. is a, it's a great that's, song if you're going to pick something song. to yeah. represent rock and roll absolutely that's a great one yeah uh, this to me is more time capsule stuff Zemeckis a 90s director <laughs> um, <laughs> he was actually the first director attached and then he left to make a biopic about Harry Houdini starring Tom Cruise um I wish that movie had gotten made. I really do. I am do. so upset that that movie was never made now. <laughs> well, or wait, do you wish that that movie had been made by the person who took on the project after Zemeckis left, which is Paul Verhoeven? I would kill to see Paul Verhoeven have to direct Tom Cruise. That actually would have been so much. Like, just, I don't care what the subject would have been. Just the pairing of those two would have been would have been bonkers. So that yes. never got made. The Contact movie was eventually offered to George Miller, um, director of Mad Max, and of course, Babe. You know, mm-hmm. his oeuvre is a little weird. Mm-hmm. You can't predict him, I would say. No. His vision for the movie was uh, Ray Fiennes as Joss, Linda Hunt as the president, and he wanted to have the Pope be a key character. It would have been a different movie. 
I'm sorry. I'm just laughing, picturing like the Pope's agent having the conversation. <laughs> having the conversation with George. It's like, George, George, the Pope is very into the script. I like that the you're Pope also translating that he wanted the Pope and not just yes. a character of the Pope. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. I'm assuming he actually wanted the Pope. Wanted I'm assuming Pope. like John Paul II's agent was like, George, I can't tell you how into the script the Pope is, but he, he does have a few notes. <laughs> Can we get points on the back notes. end? That's exactly. all. Yes. Wanna, but yes. Is that going to work for you? Apparently, it took too long, uh, Miller. It was in pre-production, but he was apparently like farting around with maybe trying to get the Pope. And <laughs> Zemeckis came back and he was promised total artistic control. I want to talk a little bit about the script for the movie mm-hmm. or, or the original script. And I, I feel like if I'd known some of this going in, this time I would have been better prepared for my disappointment in the Ellie character. <laughs> At one point, they wanted to, what I would say, Murphy Brown her by giving her a child. By the way, that is a great 90s reference to yeah, Murphy thank you. Brown her. So, like, well done. Yeah. And he, uh, this was a suggestion from Peter Goober, who is a, Again, those with a head for 90s trivia may remember him. He was kind of a super producer name at the time. Linda Obst was also one of the producers. Another, like, again, if you read EW in the 90s, like, those are names you would recognize. But Gerber said, here was a woman consumed with the idea that there was something out there worth listening to, but the one thing she could never make contact with was her own child. Oh, my God. (laughs) (laughs) I've just I wonder if Goober speaks in like movie poster language in real life like if you just were to yeah. have coffee with them it would just be like lines that would appear on movie posters that's amazing they also debated it that would be she had an adult son that was having have actually Arroway having an adult son which ah. timeline who knows whatever and then mm-hmm. the other possibility was that she would have a baby at the end of, of the movie which equally dumb to me not that having babies is dumb but no, but but for this film, device. that was yeah. it was totally unnecessary. It, it's right. absolutely unnecessary. I have to wonder yeah. if one reason why they didn't do that is that she was based on a real woman hmm. <laughs> who consulted on the film, Jill Tarter, who was head of the Phoenix Project at the SETI Institute. And the Phoenix Project is the listening to space. Ah, very well. Project. Uh, Dan, any thoughts so far on this background? Well, let me put it this way. I, I know you didn't like the film that much, Anna, but it sounds like they made the right choices in the case of these screen notes. So it could have been a far worse film. So, you know, to be fair. I'll only add a couple more things. Um, they did film at the Very Large Array, which has one of the best names in science. It's just called the Very Large Array, right? <laughs> I do love the fact that it's like, yeah, that's what you think it is. VL it's a very large array. Large. Yep. Yeah, that's yeah, it. Yeah. And they actually had to negotiate to get the scene, the shot where all the radio telescopes move at once. Like, <laughs> yeah. is apparently very unrealistic. Like, that would never happen. And they had to negotiate it actually happening. Mm-hmm. They call it the most dramatic shot in the movie. I'm not... I'm not sure if I would call it the most dramatic shot in the movie, but, you know. It was not the most dramatic yeah. shot in the movie, right. Anna. It was, a cool, it was a cool shot. I'm not going to lie. But, like, you know, it's not... not it, it's nothing memorable. And then I think that there's some there's some stuff about the science that maybe I'll save for later. But there is a running theme at this point, I believe, in our discussions of some science fiction movies, Dan, which is that scientists are so happy when someone cares that they agree to participate. <laughs> and then they have to do something like, well, that, but that's not exactly right. Because <laughs> like, like, SETI did participate in mm. the in the filming of the movie but there's kind of an adorable faq um on the seti website <laughs> where they're like this was great and we appreciate it 
But for instance, you don't really just listen to the noise from space. <laughs> <laughs> I I have to admit, as a social scientist, at least I am totally sympathetic with where SETI was coming from. Yeah. I'm sure. <laughs> On the one hand, look, this was a serious, big Hollywood film that actually took SETI's purpose right. seriously. Yep. Like, the fundamentals, I totally get why they would cooperate. And, of course, it's all the details that they're going to get wrong. And, yeah, those are the kinds of things that, you know, annoy you if whether you're a sci-fi nerd or just a nerd nerd and, like, you know how this shit is supposed to work. And it's like, that's why are yeah, you Yeah, a nerd nerd, way? the whole listening... T- I mean, I, yeah. I don't know why it didn't bother me more earlier, but... <laughs> Like, the idea that you just listen to the outer space noise. I think this is where, you know what, I'm going to cut Zemeckis some slack, or the, the, the film some slack. I actually thought that was a good way of doing it. I mean, I recognize that the science is bullshit, but, like, actually, I thought, to be honest, I thought the most exciting scene is when she starts hearing it and is racing back to the lab. I actually thought that was shot really well. Again, we should probably start actually talking about the yeah, movie, yeah. but I was going to say that of all the exciting typing on keyboard scenes that we yeah. have Ooh, observed. that's right. Yes. And which, which you are not a big fan of. This is a pretty exciting typing on keyboard scene. So in other words, this meets the, the Anna Marie Cox threshold of they did the typing on keyboards right, which is, you. it's a high bar for it's you. It's a high bar for me. And it probably okay. is because it involves other things besides keyboards, like moving shit around. Yeah. I, I'm going to say the last thing because it is, it is interesting to me, but the blind scientist is actually based on a real physicist from SETI who was supposed to play himself, and, but has a funny oh. quote um, in one of the articles I read saying that they expanded the role to a real <laughs> character and so they had to get a real actor. <laughs> And it was, he was played by William Fickner, who does a great job. In yeah, the, in yeah. The there is some good acting in this movie. It's not yeah. done by the people you'd suspect. But Correct. <laughs> which, which, let's leave that, you know what, let's get right to the plot now so we can talk about the Yes, the, let the us movie. go. Let yeah. us proceed. All right, let's start with Act One. It's a hard knock life for Ellie. Meet Dr. Ellie Arroway, astronomer extraordinaire at the Arecibo Observatory in Puerto Rico, looking for intelligent life in the universe. She's doing this for several reasons, including A, her hardscrabble upbringing with a mom who died during childbirth, and a father who passed away from a heart attack when she was nine, and B, she's having a hard time finding intelligent life on Earth, Anna. She does Hardy find hard, hard, Anne. Yes, I know. But she does find one guy, or rather one guy finds her, Palmer Joss, who is trying to reconcile faith in technology and charms Ellie into a session of, all right, all right, all right, if you catch my meaning. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I do, Dan. I do. <laughs> Thank you. I do. I don't care if that was an elbow to the ribs joke on it. It was a good joke. The next morning, the head of the NSF, David Drumlin, an old uh, dissertation advisor of hers who thinks that SETI is dumb, kicks her out of the observatory. Airway gets funding from Haddon Industries, which allows her to continue her research at the Very Large Array, VLA, in New Mexico. What is the Very Large Array? It's a very large array. It's a very large array. It's I love that that is the yeah. acronym. Yeah. It's great. <laughs> Four years later, Drumlin, now the special science advisor to the president, is about to kick Ellie's team off the VLA when she detects a signal coming in from Vega, and then she decides to tell everyone. Anna, I had two thoughts after watching the first act of this film. First, uh, Matthew McConaughey's character is so, so Clinton-era specific. I mean, it it just, like, embodies the Clinton-era when so the, well. When the clock, like, struck midnight... In 2000, he disappeared. <laughs> That's, yes. But Palmer Joss just disappeared, yes. It just, he, it just he, poof. Like the like snap, it. like Thanos snapped him away. Like that's what yeah. happened, yes. Yes, <laughs> I think that makes sense. 
second, I was surprised, and this was one thing I actually enjoyed even more this time around. In retrospect, how well the film captures the dynamic between Ellie Arroway and Drumlin. Because Drumlin embodies all of the dangers and arrogance <laughs> of a know-it-all advisor. As someone who is... I was going to say, Dan, are you yeah. bringing some personal history to this? Yes, yes, yes. But I mean this sincerely. Props to Tom Skerritt, who I actually think does the best performance in this film. Yeah. Because he plays this character as a smart, ambitious villain, but you can see where he's coming from. Yeah. And so, like, I, I again, really well done, and I, I was impressed by that. There are odd places of good acting in this movie, right? Like, yeah. they're not the lead roles. Although no. Matthew McConaughey is charismatic and cool in every role he does. So, like... <laughs> he's Matthew McConaughey. He's Matthew McConaughey. <laughs> Tom Skerritt is really good. Not, I, I think he's a villain, but also he's not cardboard, right? Right, exactly, like, yeah. They give him enough humanity that he's a kind of realistic villain like it's, it's kn- not like a d- deep character you know no, but but it's a but he's a character who's arrogant and also there are times where he clearly feels shame and yeah. so like and, that and, and that's humanity. what you want to see like he, yeah exactly so yeah. I, I he does a great job and also i would say i the one thing i would add here is that i wasn't a huge fan of jodie foster's performance but i think jodie foster's best moments in this film come when she's playing off of him yeah is I the agree. way i would put it yeah i agree i also think john hurt who plays hatton is yes. actually very good. He's a, so once a, he, he does not appear in Act One, but but he's very good. It just shows that all movies that have more alien people in them are probably better movies. Yeah, yeah. I did love McConaughey. I, I want to say that they they move on pretty fast. The two of them, Ellie and Palmer. Mm-hmm. I do think I couldn't live with the whole celibacy thing. Is is quite the line to drop the second time you meet somebody. <laughs> Anna, how do I put this? First of all, that's not the way he says it. The way he says it is, I couldn't handle the whole celibacy. That, that is true. That is the way he says it. <laughs> okay. And no offense, that works better that way. And second, again, if you're Matthew fucking McConaughey, yeah, oh. you can get away with that line. Well, also, you don't need to say it. And I would yeah. leave immediately, too, Like, which, which is what happens. They leave to, like, He basically says that line, and then she says, let's get out of here. <laughs> which is how it would work in real life. However, what doesn't work, and it's so strange, is that mm-hmm. there is zero chemistry between them. This is actually a scientific anomaly. <laughs> this I, is one of the bad science in this movie. It, 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 this is a legitimate scientific question. Because first of all, Matthew McConaughey, you know, should have chemistry with literally He has every chemistry human with being. cars, Dan. Yes, like those Lincoln exactly. ads. Yeah. Like, yeah. he, he's vibing with the car. Regardless of gender, you should totally vibe on Matthew McConaughey. And Jodie Foster has had chemistry with plenty of other actors in roles, like with Mel Gibson in Maverick, with Richard Gere, I think, in, in Summersby. So the two of them, and they're not bad actors. You would have expected them to gel. And there is nothing. It is lifeless. And it she's so bad. dour. Like, Oh, God. Yes. I believe if I had sex with Matthew McConaughey, it would put me in a good mood. I, I, I would like to test that theory. I would like to do some science on it. I would like you to science the shit out of that, Anna, frankly. Okay? I'm rooting for you to do some science on that. But, but yeah. I, I feel like it's a strong hypothesis that yes. sex with Matthew McConaughey would put someone in a good mood. <laughs> you know what? I think I would be in a better mood too, I, Anna. Yeah, Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And totally willing to acknowledge that. They have like poiscloidal chat where she yeah. just seems like she's like She you has know? she looks like she's like I've made a terrible mistake. Yeah, I'm right. She looks like she might she'd rather be doing her taxes. Like yes. it's just <laughs> And she leaves I mean it's one thing like the one night stand thing, like 
I kind of want to talk at length about the character <laughs> of the single female scientist. Yes. But I get, like, she can't form attachments fine, and she d- does yeah, a one-night yeah, stand yeah. thing, whatever. Sure. But okay. you can have fun and then still decide it's going to be a one-night stand. Like, right, exactly. Like, the... the Maybe this is the '90s part. And well, of it. I know I don't know why we're we're dwelling on this, except that it is really weird. <laughs> no, it's a le- because it's a legitimately puzzling fact. And I, I will say that might be the 1990s ass you know calling from this film because I suspect if this had been made now, I don't see how she would have been dour about it. Like yeah. I mean, as you say, you know, you just did it with Matthew McConaughey. I mean, you know, you should feel good about yourself, even if it's going to keep a one night stand. Or maybe you're going to be all sad because you're it's not going to be a two night stand or a three night stand. It's just yeah, it's it's a weird. It is undeniably the weirdest aspect of the film. And then there's this, there is this very, you know what, this is, you're right. There's so many different ways that there's the flavor of the 90s to this. The other way is like the second wave feminism Mm -hmm. POV where, you know, Ellie gets big footed or man footed by Drumlin, you know? Yeah. And it's a little heavy handed, but okay, Mm -hmm. that might happen. But also... It probably would be the senior science advisor that does the press conference and not the random person who made the discovery. Like, yeah. I mean, hate to say it, like, but it should be maybe, but that's just all how politics works too. Right. Like, this you happens put- a little bit later, but like, you know, there's a, at some point there's supposed to be someone giving a briefing from the White House. It would presumably be the science advisor to the president who would yeah. give the briefing and not the scientist. I know that sounds like, you know, like that's just... Politics. Man or woman, you'd put the person yeah. who had experience in front of the cameras at the press conference. Yeah. But what yeah. was wild to me, I guess this hasn't happened yet, but I'm going to say it no. anyway. But but what's okay. wild to me is that when she finally does get this private funding and then something good happens, mm-hmm. is that they don't keep it private. Like, yes, the government ch- comes in to, like, take it over. Right. But, like, I think if Elon Musk funded a SETI project <laughs> and it made contact... Elon Musk would be the person to like put it in public. Like that is true. Actually, you you bring up an interesting plot point, which is is that you know Ellie decides to tell everyone, right? By by which you mean other scientists. But it is it is interesting to think. Yeah, you know what? You might have wanted to inform the funders also because like yeah, that yeah. That's a, that's the too. part that I was like, how come Haddon's not doing this announcement? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, anyway, well, this- we need to move on, Dan. This brings us to Act Two. All right, all right, all right. It's aliens. <laughs> I'm not going like to apologize. Saying it. I know. Everyone I, I'm does. not going to apologize. Yeah. yeah. All right. So everyone and their mother comes to the VLA to look at the uh, signal. This includes UFO groupies, neo Nazis, apocalypse cults, an Elvis impersonator performing Viva Las Vegas, which I did find funny, Drumlin, who is now the special science advisor to the president, and NSC advisor Michael Kitts, played by James Woods, who apparently previewing his evolution <laughs> to where he would be in 2022. <laughs> Included in the signal is a sequence of prime numbers, but they also find an offset video signal, which turns out to be the first powerful TV broadcast, and that turns out to be Adolf Hitler's welcoming to begin the 1936 Olympic Games in Berlin. Awkward! Anna, I love this, I have to say. This is actually one of my favorite moments. Yeah, it's one of the things I remembered about the movie and also really liked it when I first saw it. And it, for some reason, feels true. Like, that's how fucked up we are as humans. Yes, Like, of course, like, that would be the first thing that people hear from us. Yes. But, like, the moment then that it becomes a big political hot potato, like, that was, assuming that was grounded in truth, I was like, okay, that was actually surprising and, like, a good way of dealing with it. So they decode more of the message, which contains a ton of data and what looks like engineering schematics. 
As the White House steps in and Drumlin starts muscling Ellie aside in her own research, billionaire industrialist and funder S.R. Haddon comes to the rescue, played by John Hurt. He provides Ellie the key—well, actually, sorry. First, he helpfully, I believe, Anna recaps everything yeah. that has happened yeah. to the film <laughs> until that point. So, like, it's like—so if you've been watching the film, this is where you take the bathroom break yeah. so S.R. Haddon can do the, the spiel. If you fell asleep uh, at some point, it's very helpful. Yes. Because it's a warm bath of a movie. You might have fallen asleep. (laughs) But he also provides Ellie with the key to unlocking the primer that decodes all of the data. And it turns out that that data provides blueprints for a machine to take one human somewhere. So the U.S. creates the IMC, an international machine consortium, to build the $333 (laughs) billion machine. I didn't realize it was called the IMC. It is called the IMC. The International Machine Consortium. Consortium. Well, look, if you're going to have the VLA, you might as well have That's the That's true. I, mean, I just, I feel like scientists are more straightforward. So I, yeah, the VLA is the VLA. I just yeah. feel like governments would call it something I can't even imagine, but it wouldn't be called the thing that it is, whatever it was <laughs> <Yeah>. called. <laughs> Go ahead. Anyway, they're going to build the $333 billion machine. This is back when a third of a trillion dollars was some real money uh, in Cape Canaveral and creates an international panel to decide who will go on the ship. Drumlin resigns as science advisor because he wants to be the guy. Arroway obviously wants to go as well and is a finalist, but Palmer Joss, now on the committee, busts her for being an atheist in a live hearing. Drumlin, who is willing to lie about this, gets picked instead. Anna, I have very conflicted feelings about this section of the film. On the one hand, I kind of like the mundane politics of it. And actually, I I do think some of this was actually reasonably well-grounded. I think the Clinton administration would have totally proposed a consortium to do this. That was spot on. On the other hand, this is also one of the parts where the film leans really hard on the science versus faith dichotomy that is not actually a dichotomy. Sorry, what do you say? Not a dichotomy. Yeah. I think this might be the number one reason. No, okay, it's a tie between how Ellie is portrayed and this, um, Mm. which is this idea that there's some fundamental divide that must be debated between science um, and religion. Like, Mm -hmm. and I think one of the reasons why this bothers me now and maybe didn't bother me so much then is that I have come to have more faith as Mm -hmm. I've gotten older. Mm -hmm. And it seems even less of a thing. Like, I full on believe in God now (laughs) and I have no problem with science. Like it's just not a thing. Right. And it really seems to me like it's something that is only the hobby horse of, of really like militant atheists, (laughs) like devout atheists, devout atheists, evangelical atheists. Yeah. And I just want to make a side note, which is as I have become someone who is public about my faith, I have been proselytized to more by atheists than anyone else. Like, (laughs) so I've been on Bill Maher's show a few times Mm -hmm. and he's a dick, like don't like him, but, (laughs) and he's, he's very aloof. He might be kind of a shy guy and who knows, but the only time he ever spoke to me at an after party for, for that show was when religion came up on, on the show I was on and he came over to try and debate me about it. What the fuck guy? I mean, like, so he's uh, in other words it's his hobby horse it's his hobby horse it it is a thing that like people who feel strongly about atheism want to talk about but people who feel strongly about religion like are not necessarily interested even if maybe they are creationists or whatever right they don't have this burning desire to to disabuse you of your belief in like (laughs) evolution 
you know? (laughs) Like, anyway. And then, but speaking of atheism, a question, Dan. Yeah. One of the 90s time capsule things here is this idea that someone would get booted off of this mission for being an atheist, I -hmm. think. Let me put it this way. I think that was very true to the 1990s. Yeah. I think it might have been one of those sort of culture war issues if it was debated today, but I also don't think... The fact is, is that the United States is more atheist now yeah. than we were or none. in the 90s. It is a yes. nation of nuns, N-O-N-E. Like more yeah. people identify as having no particular faith um, right. than any other faith. Yeah. It, it, I mean, I could believe it as a time capsule right. issue. Yeah. I don't think it necessarily be an issue today. I will say, to the extent it was an issue, can we agree that Palmer was a dick? to bring it up no anna palmer wasn't a dick because he acknowledged (laughs) later that he was doing it because he loved ellie and didn't want her to go come on how dare you stand in the way of again the worst chemistry in a 1990s (laughs) film like i you know he would have been happier just driving his lincoln like it just (laughs) don't keep her this anyway then this is this is the place where the occam's razor comes up again and yes not some obscure philosophical principle dan it's a it's a thing people especially people who've been to divinity school would know about so i was annoyed yes annoyed by that i also skipped over the scene where i actually did like the line where like you know ellie sees palmer for the first time there's going to be some reception so she then asks angela bassett who's by the way completely wasted in this film like you know it she's fine in the film but like it's it's way too small a role for her where she asks her is there a place where i can find a really great dress okay i'm glad you bring this up (laughs) we got to talk about this so yeah Go ahead on it. Like I, this was something where I did change my mind. I remember back in the nineties thinking, "Whoa, that's a nice dress." And this <laughs> time I watched it. This I'm going to acknowledge. I said thought that in the nineties. This time I watched it, it was like, "Wait, what? That's yeah, not a it, great dress." It, it, it looks like she's going to rent fair. Like <laughs> it. It's not a great dress. Number but two, also her hair. Oh my god! Well, her hair looks like it's going to rent fair. Like yes. it's like. <laughs> Like, how many hours, like, I was watching this, this is where maturity is, like, some experiences has, you know, afforded me. I watched that, it's like, wait, so she spent three hours at the hairdresser as well? Or, like, what are we talking about there? The other thing I thought was funny is that of all the people to ask, (laughs) the character that Angela, in real life, I would ask Angela Bassett for sure. Oh, yeah, totally, yes. The woman who is Angela Bassett, that woman would know where to get get a great dress. Yeah. The character she plays, I'm not so sure. Like, no. she's like a White House functionary, not yeah. known for being snappy dressers. Right. And then also, would she direct Ellie to a place where she could get that dress? Because <laughs> like, <laughs> nine times out of ten, if you were if you were a woman uh, in Washington D.C. in the '90s, the place that you would go for anything would be Ann Taylor. So. <laughs> Yep. And you, you're not going to get that dress at Ann Taylor. No, I don't know where you, are you would get not. that dress. But uh, anyway. You know what I, what I like to think is that Ellie went to Ann Taylor, but then there was this like Ren Faire store right next to it. <laughs> and so that's where she went instead. Like I bet that was I bet that was one of the deleted scenes, frankly. Right. Yeah. Yeah, but she but it is Jodie Foster. So, of course, like she, she, looks, she looks amazing. She looks it's, amazing. It's but Jodie like, Foster. And yet still has no chemistry. Right. Still. Yes. 
Okay, but I also, by the way, that is a fair point because it is weird that like that dress is not that great because if there was anything Jodie Foster was known for in the 1990s, it was amazing runway dresses. Like, you know, how many award ceremonies was it like Jodie Foster like at the top of the list? So yeah. they should have just asked Jodie to bring in something from her house. It would have been great. Uh, well, okay. In hindsight, yeah. we could do a lot better job with this movie, but we, we need to move on, Dan. We do. Okay, so let's go to Act 3. What if we shot 2001 A Space Odyssey, but we made it in the 1990s? So, NASA runs a system test on the machine with Drumlin supervising, but a religious zealot infiltrates the ship and detonates an explosive vest, killing Drumlin and destroying the ship. Also, just a shout out to Jake Busey, who plays the uh, religious zealot. Again, he's only in the film for like maybe three minutes, does a great job. Yeah, one of the strange little... Oh, there's someone acting. Look. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So, the ship is destroyed, and that looks like it's the end of the film. But wait! It turns out that Haddon and the Japanese subcontractors that he owns built another backup facility on Hokkaido Island, a truly massive structure that you can literally see from space that I'm sure (laughs) no one would have ever noticed at all or told the press about. We'll put that to one side and just point out Ellie's going to get to go into space. So... In Hokkaido, one of the most absurd launch sequences <laughs> I have ever seen put on film commences. So the launch is like this three ring structure that starts spinning and then presumably creates some it, sort of wormhole. But literally at one point, missiles seem to fire from the structure yeah. for no functional reason whatsoever. They, I, I actually, I laughed, but also <laughs> stopped the movie for a second because I was like, did... Missiles just launch over, like, because they they not don't just launch, they launch over over it. the structure, right? Like, if the missile launch had been slightly to a different angle, it would have destroyed everything. Yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. It just goes, yeah. they just go over. It is a very long sequence. This is, you know, I mean, Zemeckis loves his special effects, right? Right. So, yeah, yeah. That's the only thing I can write it off to. Anyway. Ellie's pod turns translucent and travels through a series of wormholes. We see a vast array at Vega and then signs of an advanced civilization on another planet. And then Zemeckis decides he's going to Stanley Kubrick this shit. And we get a shot of Ellie's eye that turns into her landing on the beach. A figure walks toward her and big reveal. It's her dad. Or is Uh, it Dan? Is it really her dad? (laughs) No, it's alien dad. (gasps) (laughs) Alien Dad explains to Ellie that they thought this form would be easier for her slightly evolved monkey brain to process. Turns out there are lots of advanced civilizations out there. Alien Dad explains that this is just the first step of a long journey, at which point we find ourselves back on Earth, where to mission control, Ellie didn't go anywhere, and her pod just dropped through the rotating ring structure. Again, the most absurd looking thing, because, like, I don't know how the pod was going to drop without one of the rings being hitting it, and everything falling apart or whatever. Point is, didn't look like she'd gone anywhere. Anna, I do want to talk a little bit about, you said that this film was sort of during the peak of second wave feminism. And the thing I kept wondering watching this film, and particularly Ellie's character, was am I annoyed at her because she's actually really bad at politics and leadership? (laughs) Or am I annoyed at her because I'm a sexist and she's a woman and I wouldn't feel feel this way about a male character doing the same thing? I think she's written terribly. Yeah. And that some of the like sexism in the writing like just bleeds into the performance, you yeah. know? Like mm-hmm. I think because there there's a couple competing things here. Like one is they give her this traumatic backstory which the more they harp on it, the more annoyed I became because people become scientists for 
lots of reasons, Dan. <laughs> no, it's true. And like, you're also right. Like, this, is a, this is a weak. It, this reminds me of Gravity, where like Sandra yeah. Bullock's character has the same sort of thing, where it's like a traumatic backstory and it, it wasn't necessary. No, like people become scientists just because they love science. Yeah. You know, like they have like a, a, a driving curiosity. Right. To, Which to she find... had before yes. her father died. I'm right. Add. Exactly. So, like, yeah. yeah. Exactly. And, and yeah. you don't need to have like a dead dad to like also be bad at being pe- being with people. Right. <laughs> plenty of people are, have trouble forming relationships like without having a dead dad. And on a plenty, and also, plenty of scientists are particularly bad at this. So yes, that's fair. Yeah. And, and also that might not lead you to be bad at relationships. It might in fact make you better. Who knows? Like yeah. they, they sort of set her up in a way that you wouldn't set up a male scientist. Right. It, it, and that I think undermines the character a little bit. Yeah. You know, because like imagine like if if the roles had been reversed, which would it is cool to have a female scientist, fine. But like if you had the Matthew McConaughey character being the scientist, mm-hmm. being pat like doing his speech in front of the Haddon Foundation, yeah. I mean, I feel like it would have read differently, you know, mm-hmm. like and yeah. not so. I mean, I, I don't like that scene. <laughs> <laughs> I don't like that scene because she seems emotional, right? Like, right, and this is one of the problems I have with her character. Is yeah. she, gets, she gets, I'm willing to acknowledge this might be sexism on my part, but like she gets emotional at the wrong times, I guess would be the way to put it, if she's really a scientist. Like I, I, it's the bizarre part of it for like me. Like I said, it's, it's, I think it's the conflicting. It's like, oh, we'll make it a woman and that's kind of feminist, right? But yeah, also yeah. we have to give her this backstory, which right. just has is just dripping with sexism, you know? Yeah. And also, we'll we'll make her difficult. Have make it so that she doesn't form relationships easily because she's a cold scientist. But then she'll break down in public. Right. Exactly. <laughs> like, that, it, she, no. It, that is a perfect. No. I think you've actually finally captured why I'm annoyed, which is the, it's just like this bunch of different ticks that actually don't cohere into a real personality. And which I mean, is why so, Jodie Foster has a tr- has trouble like yeah with the role. Well, yeah. She's a brilliant actress, but what yeah. can you do right w- w- with that? Yeah. The other thing I want to say about Ellie and her faults mm-hmm. is th- they should have sent a poet. <laughs> <laughs> is that where this line comes from, by the way? That was yeah. the one thing I couldn't remember. That's yeah. a, it's a good line. So, you know. Because but. she does a shitty job of describing what she's seeing. That's true. <laughs> like at, at one point, she goes, it's a celestial event of some kind. <laughs> <laughs> like... Number one, you're a scientist. You're like a fucking astrophysicist. You should be able to like say what it is, right? If it's a celestial event of some kind. Number yes, two, that's true. She doesn't know if they're getting it, right? Like that's the whole thing is she doesn't know yeah. if they're able to pick up any of it. So you should describe it. Right. You know? I kept I kept literally waiting for her to say how She just keeps saying it's so something. beautiful. It's so beautiful. Right. Yeah. Yes. A poet would have been helpful. Yeah. Like someone to actually say what's, what the fuck is going on. Yeah. Dan, do you want to finish up? Yeah, let's close this out. So right. act four, space exploration is a flat circle. A controversy on Earth where Ellie describes what happened and no one believes her. Also <laughs> unbelievable is the special executive inquiry, which for some reason holds hearings on Capitol Hill and is run in no small part by former NSC advisor turned politician. I'm just going to say James Woods because yeah. his name is He's playing James Woods. Yeah, yeah. yeah. James Woods uh, interrogates Ellie, implying that the entire message was a hoax created by Haddon I guess to make money? He never actually explains why the hoax would have been done. Also, JFK Jr. is still alive. Yeah. And the vaccine has <laughs> a microchip in it. 
Fair enough. <laughs> and says that there is no evidence to support her claims. Uh, Ellie apparently forgets that eyewitness testimony does count as evidence in most courts and instead acknowledges that James Woods might be correct. She asks the committee to accept her testimony on faith. Get it? Get it on mm. it? Do you get it? I do. Yeah. I do. Faith. Okay. Yeah. As she leaves the hearing, Palmer... But is it also science, Dan? Yeah. But but science. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Faith? Yeah. Science? I, I, it's just, it's like there's a duality. The reason why I don't like this, I think, by the way, I would add, Anna, is not that I've become more religious, but because the last science fiction thing I've seen that stressed this this hard was Foundation, and it sucked too on this point. <laughs> that is correct. So just going to point that out. Yeah. As she leaves the hearing, however, Palmer and his ridiculous scarf comfort her, mm. and she sees folks gathered on the mall in support of her like she's almost a prophet. Mm. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So James Woods and a White House official, played by Angela Bassett, again, a wasted opportunity, discuss what to do with Ellie. They also discuss the confidential findings report from the investigative committee where the actual corroborating evidence exists showing that Ellie was away for about 18 hours. So 18 months later, the movie closes with Ellie back at what I'm now going to call the VVLR because there's a lot more large arrays um, with even more satellites to look up there. Anna, how to put this? Hate is a strong word, so I'm going to say I dislike this ending. Mm -hmm. I dislike Ellie being so emotional during the hearing. I dislike the take it on faith aspect of the plot. And I dislike, in particular, the deus ex machina of the suppression of evidence because mm -hmm. that resolves this entire business. And also, by the way, I dislike the fact, because it's just sort of left hanging, that no one would use this machine again. The $333 billion machine that, like... Just no one, it just stays in Hokkaido. I, I mean, that strikes me as an issue. So, yeah, agree. <laughs> yeah, okay, good. good. Um, also, why are they suppressing the evidence? Yeah, I don't get that. There's a, like a vague faint, which again is not terribly believable that like somehow the, the message causes riots in parts of the world, which again makes no goddamn sense, actually. We already did sort of a rant on like the non-dichotomy yeah. between science and faith. What's interesting to me here is I guess, you know, the other people that really care about this is this is something that Sagan and Druyan were obviously intentional about. Right. And she talks a lot about it. There's this weird defensiveness in some of the articles I saw that are written after Sagan's death. Like people think he was an atheist, but and he was an atheist but mm -hmm. he also did have this you know kind of reverence for the universe let's say mm -hmm. and i think neither he nor Druyan thought of it as being much of a dichotomy and in fact that's sort of the message of the movie if there's a message is this really pedantic thing about <laughs> see it's not such a dichotomy yeah but they they had to set it up as a dichotomy in order to get to the place where it's not right. a dichotomy. So the, right. So in other words, the message of this film is, hey, you know that false dichotomy we've been hammering yeah. on for, you know, or nearly two hours? Turns out it's not a dichotomy. Surprise! Yeah, how about you know? that? Yeah, exactly. Peace, yeah. man. Cool, yeah. right? Yeah. And it is, this is profit much. Um, <laughs> it is an intentional parallel to the to the apostles um, mm -hmm. having to, like, go out and, and preach without the benefit of having an actual miracle worker next to them. Mm -hmm. That's what Ellie is doing. Yeah, I mean, I, yeah, yeah. Yeah. It, I, I don't know. So now, Dan, that we've solved the fake dichotomy, <laughs> I only have one question. Yes, Anna? Is there IR in this movie? 
if there wasn't IR in this film, Anna, that would be an awful waste of space. <laughs> Which is a line that you hear multiple times in the yes. film. So, yeah, there is some IR. It's not a ton of it, but but there is some. First, there is the grubby and, for me, fascinating international political economy of the IMC which is you see a clear trade-off that some countries want the prestige of actually having the first astronaut to meet aliens, so that's what the United States cares about. Others want the manufacturing capacity, like the Japanese subcontractors. So that was some good horse trading. I am kind of curious, like, it gets referenced. I would have actually been kind of curious, like, who was in the IMC, who was not? Was China in the IMC? Was Russia? Don't know. I want to follow up. I'd be curious about the intellectual property issues. Yes, yes. (laughs) And that's that is the other thing. To be fair, like you know, who has copyright on the space travel technology? <laughs> well, the other, I mean, like, leave it this way. Like, there are legitimate debates to be had about what the commercial spill spillover effects were of the space program, but they were very real. Mm-hmm. And I would have liked to have known if there were any as a result of this project, which was right. not talked about. But the the big reveal here, I think, is that it turns out that Ellie Arroway. beyond being an astronomer, at least when it comes to international relations, is clearly a social constructivist because she has this great conversation with Drumlin as Drumlin is about to do the test. And Drumlin sort of actually gives, you know, this is the way the world is. I wish the world were different. But he sort of gives his realpolitik view of, yeah, I lied about believing in God so I could get the job. And then she literally says, I always believe that the world is what we make of it. And that is the core of Alexander Wendt's theory of social constructivism. Indeed, the title of his most famous, you know, uh, journal article ever is Anarchy is What States Make of It. So in some ways, very similar. And actually, I think that's entirely consistent with the way Zemeckis thinks about the film, because he's clearly a constructivist. The other theme that runs through this film is the idea of loneliness. You know, that line, it would be an awful waste of space if we were alone in the universe. And and indeed, Mm. the nature of the conversation, which, by the way, again, a good performance by David Morse. David Morse is great at playing that kind of role. But, you know, who plays Ellie's dad sort of talks about how we all are alone in the universe. And the only comfort we all have is knowing that, in fact, we're not alone, which and I like the idea. Let me put it this way. I, I don't subscribe to all of social constructivism, but the idea that to be human is to be social is... There's an appeal to that, and I, I mm. like that. And dare I say a little, it, it hopefully will last beyond the 1990s. Mm. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I, I, I think it is interesting where the good performances show up. There's a part of me, like, I, if we get to, like, would I recommend this movie mm-hmm. territory? I almost want to recommend it just for those those few little spots of interesting performances. You know what this is? This is like when you go to a restaurant and you order a dish not because of the main, but because the sides look interesting. <laughs> because the sides are pretty good in this movie. Yeah. The main dish, yeah, it's okay. It's serviceable. But like the sides are actually quite quite well done. Mm-hmm. So I have one question for you, Anna. Mm-hmm. Dan? Is there a critique of capitalism in this film? Dan, this is the way we've done it for billions and billions of years. And there's no <laughs> need to change it. I found this a remarkably pro-market, pro-capitalist movie, what with Haddon being the hero. Creepy, but he but saves the day. Also self-acknowledged creepy. Like, yeah. I, I actually did, like, there's a line where Haddon talks about how the world has given so much of him, and then he says, no, wait, how much I've taken. And it was like, yeah. that was... He, actually- creepy, you know, avarice, you know, right. yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, capitalist. Right. What's wild about it being so kind of 
neoliberal is that Andrewian supposedly mm-hmm. got interested in science because of Karl Marx. I beg you. I don't, I couldn't find the rest of the interview. That's like in Wikipedia and it's, she's quoted elsewhere, but I'm okay. like, how? Okay, fine, good. <laughs> What's even more interesting and more well documented is that Carl Sagan, quote, greatly admired Leon Trotsky <laughs> as a political figure and symbol of the struggle for historical truth. I wish our listeners could see Dan's face. <laughs> I, I, I was going to respond with a Keanu Reeves whoa, but I don't think that's the appropriate response to that. That's more like a, uh-huh? Like yeah, uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And in fact, in his last book, he writes that in the 70s and 80s, he and Julian would routinely smuggle copies of Trotsky's The History of the Russian Revolution into the USSR, Quote, so that our colleagues could know a little about their own political beginnings. <laughs> oh, dear. <laughs> I don't know, yeah, Dan. I just don't know. I don't. That's a you... really big risk to take for that. Like, that's, <laughs> yeah. that. I, to I... be completely fair. Right. Like, I think some people that the writers who, who who took some of this information and wrote the pieces that I read about his admiration for Trotsky, mm-hmm. it's really based more on his distaste for the disappearing of Trotsky from, you know, by, by Stalin from photos and whatnot and the idea of the memory hole sure. than it is okay. like he actually was into Trotsky. <laughs> like, <laughs> okay. I... I will say this, it's it's impressive for, like, if he was doing this in the 1980s, that would be It is impressive. Something. It is impressive. Yeah. And it, then there's just more kind of 90s, you know, uh, time capsule neoliberalism here. Mm-hmm. Uh, his own his own personal politics, Sagan's personal politics, he was pro-universal health care, anti-drug war, anti-defense spending. But yeah, you know, he liked making money and, and made a lot <laughs> of it. And, you know, no wonder Clinton fit right into the movie. Yes. <laughs> like, yes. it's just, what if... 2001, but neoliberal. Literally, be- yeah. It's like, it, <laughs> this is the 1990s version of 2001, is the way I would put it. In that line about this is the way it's been done for billions of years, I actually, I did LOL um, <laughs> because I was like, oh, great, conservatives. Like, conservatives are galactic. Yeah. Uh, I mean, they're everywhere. You, you can't. Also, that's a terrible answer like to someone's <laughs> question. Why, are, why do you do it this way? This is the way it's been done for billions of years. I, I do this image of them, like, you know, eating the human who comes. It's like, this is the way we've been doing it for billions of I, years. You know? <laughs> Sorry. And also, a scientist would have a stronger reaction to that, I feel like. Yeah. You know? Like, because it also makes no sense. Like, if part of the test is that, oh, you're just going to have to take it on faith that we exist. Anna, they should have sent a social scientist. <laughs> a poet. That is a my, social scientist. No, poet. social scientist. Yes, exactly. Okay. Yeah. All right. Oh, wait, Dan. It's pieces of that big machine flying off. Oh, oh no, Dan. Jake Busey, what have you done? It's the debris field where we talk about things we didn't already talk about. Dan, what do you have? A uh, couple things. So, first of all, one of the first times we see Palmer, he's on Larry King. Again, another time capsule of the 90s no. film is always the shot of Larry King interviewing oh. someone and the Jay Leno bit. 
but yeah. Uh, CNN cooperated extensively with this uh, movie. You're uh, not shocked to hear. No, I'm not shocked. Um, but anyway, in that, he's promoting a book where he sa- you know, he says, are we really better off with technology? And I just want to be clear, Palmer. Yeah, we're better fucking off with technology, okay? <laughs> All right? That whole spiel to Larry King screamed first world problems of like, oh, we're all just surfing the net. What's the point of technology? Maybe it's so that you can have lower infant mortality and people can live longer. I'm just putting that out there. And, you know, like we can travel in, in some way. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm very pro-technology and I <laughs> hated that spiel. Second, I, I don't know if you caught this. There were a lot of shots of televisions in this film. Like a lot mm-hmm. of this film is like, I think Haddon is sensibly watching what's happening on the TV. I don't know why that happens, but it, it's just a thing. Yeah. I, I don't know what to say. Another thing. So we learn in Haddon's discussion of Ellie's biography that she turned down a job offer from Harvard. You know what? I'm team Drumlin on this one. <laughs> I now know why Drumlin does not necessarily terribly impressed with Ellie, you know. That that was not the brightest career move. I'm just gonna say. I am I am pissed because it's Harvard. Because Harvard's always the stand-in for like the greatest thing that yeah, you could possibly would... do is get a job at Harvard. Whereas, right. I mean, Carl Sagan's a U of C graduate. Right. That was by the way. That was the only. And U of C has a very good astrophysics department. They've done some cool stuff there. I know. This so is, this was the one thing I did thought was really funny about Don't Look Up is when at one point Jonah Hill says, come on, you guys are Michigan State, bro. What are you what are you talking about? Which is. Oh, like, and I saw I, yeah. I well, I guess the reason why we talked about that is I was kind of like, yeah, you know, sure. <laughs> <laughs> All right. There, so there's not a lot of subtle shots in this film, but I did like the way Zemeckis shot the scene between um, Ellie as a child played by Jenny Malone, Jenna Malone and the priest who sort of says this must have happened for a reason and so forth. Because it's a scene where like Ellie is sitting on the stairs and the priest is towering over her. And then she stands up and it's like the the moral, you know, position changes. And I, I, again, I thought that was well done. I, I liked her response, which to me is yeah. a very U of C response. Yes. Which is the, I'm going to solve the problem. I'm right. going to ignore what you said. Because yeah. <laughs> it's philosophical bullshit. Yes. And instead, I'm going to point out that I could have done better if his <laughs> heart attack pills were nearer to right. where he was. Yeah. It That's... was a tiny little scene, but I'm glad that was in the film. Yeah, it's good. I like to think of this film really, in, some, in retrospect, we will not talk about this next film in this pod because it's not science fiction. But it, it is striking to think that Zemeckis made this and, and then a few years later made Castaway, which I actually think is a better film and a subtler film. Because it doesn't have the Deus Ed mention at the end. <laughs> not not hard to be subtler, but yes. Right. Yes, yes. Um, but but also, like, it, it's the same theme of loneliness. And so, like, I, I just think he had to make this in order to make Castaway a better film. And, Anna, maybe I'm going to step on you for saying this, but, like, I kept thinking watching this film that you would say this. Good dads are good. Yeah, they are. Good yeah. dads are good. Yeah. I agree. <laughs> Anna, what do you got? Well, I have a few things. One um, is I, I did look up CQ which is what Ellie keeps saying in the ham radio scene when she shows a curiosity about the world, despite the fact that her dad's still alive. (laughs) Um, And it is obviously a real ham radio signal. And what it means is literally, I wish to contact any amateur station, which Ah, I just find kind of charming that that's, I mean, I I know that that's sort of how ham radio works, but just this idea, which mirrors SETI, right? Like I'm listening. Who -hmm. wants to talk? Yeah, right. Yeah. There is a smash cut early on when she's at Arecibo where she pushes a pushpin into mm-hmm. a place, which again, very inefficient way of listening to the universe. 
in a smash cut from her pushing in the pushpin to going to buy pushpins, mm-hmm. I think she would have brought her own. Yeah, and this is a pre-TSA world, so it wouldn't have been... She could have packed that on her carry-on. Yeah, she yeah. could have done in checked luggage. And also, yeah. like, she's on an island where everything's super expensive. That's if you true. make it there. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. also, the whole one-night stand thing, mm-hmm. both of them are kind of famous. <laughs> if they wanted to seek each other out, they could. SETI's a small organization. Palmer's a best-selling author. I don't know. Yeah, but then Palmer would have had to surf the web, and he would have been... Like, would he have been better off doing that, Anna? I don't, I don't know. <laughs> I'm just saying. And I'm, then yeah. this is kind of a, maybe I shouldn't bring this up into Refield, but Drumlin kind of has a point. You know, like, pure science is great, but mm-hmm. also considering the very inefficient way Ellie is going about SETI. Yeah. I can't believe I'm saying this, but like, some market forces could be helpful here. Like, what I would say is that at the time, Drumlin is running the NSF, the National oh, Science true, Foundation. True, 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 true. And so he's wrong. Let me put this way. He's right about the overall aspect of science. That's not the NSF's job. Yeah. The NSF's job is to fund pure basic science. So I that, agree. Yeah. And I believe in pure basic science. I yeah. just I just think that... I don't know, because I believe in pure basics. I believe in doing whatever it is you want to do. Mm-hmm. I just think it's not outrageous. I mean, to, no, to it's self... A pu- someone maybe this is not the best use of your talents no i actually think she was i believe this way as i said that was actually a rare moment where like drumlin is arrogant but also he's got a point yeah um, that's that's what i mean yes it's like, yeah. yeah yeah if she's also there is no point in which we kind of get an idea of what makes her such a brilliant scientist yeah that's true that's the problem you're right because she's it's, just listening for patterns and noise which she doesn't have to do yeah yeah um, speaking of patterns and noise, I, I <laughs> was going to save this for um, the newsletter, but I'll say it now, which is the book is apparently pretty different. One of the ways it's different, it's a group of people that go on the journey, which makes it harder to dispute. Uh-huh. And Ellie is given a piece of evidence. She is told by the alien being that there is a pattern in pie. And if she seeks it out, you know, this will be proof of like intelligent design. I, I don't know. I mean... There's two problems here. Mm-hmm. One is, what is that proof of? Yeah, <laughs> like, that doesn't make any sense to me, but okay. What, if you find a pattern in pie, like, it, it, aliens put it there? How could <laughs> aliens put something in a number? Right? Yeah. Yeah. And then the yeah. other thing is, and perhaps you know this, it's easy to find number to find patterns in pie. Like, you can, because it's a random infinite number. It's an irrational number, so it's, it's an irrational number, yeah. so it's it and it goes on forever. Yeah. There is in fact a website where you can enter a number to see where it occurs in Pi. So like my me. phone number is in Pi. Nice. What are the done. odds, Dan? There we go. What are the odds? Well I can tell you the odds. The odds are about ninety percent <laughs> for for a seven digit number to show up in pi. in the first two hundred million digits of pi. Yep. A th- I believe it's like a th- there's some order of numbers where it's like a ninety nine point nine percent chance that it'll show up in the first two hundred million digits of pi. <laughs> but anyway, the first two hundred million digits of pi is a lot, and you can find all kinds of patterns. It would be news if you could find a repeating pattern. Yeah, a regular that's true. repeating pattern. It would. It would not be pi then. So, but yeah, it would. It would be news because it would. Yeah, it would be new. It would be news. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It, it wouldn't like break the universe, and it certainly wouldn't be proof of alien life. But it would be news. That's true. Fair enough. <laughs> yeah. And then, 
the last thing. Mm-hmm. We've spoken of the really lovely bits of acting. Mm-hmm. Um, there's also a cameo from Rob Lowe. <laughs> yeah, this is an unfortunate cameo from Rob Lowe. He's playing like a Ralph Reed type again. Oh my throwback god, to the looks 90s exactly 90s. like Ralph Reed. Yeah, yeah. So but- I'm assuming that's who he's supposed to be embodying. But that southern accent by Rob Lowe is just pure cornpone. You know. Yeah, I especially since you have McConaughey like being southern. <laughs> right. You don't need it. <laughs> And you just hear, I mean, and there are different flavors of Southern accents. Yeah. And McConaughey has a Texas accent, which right. is slightly different from like a Georgia accent. But right. his, it's so broad. Like Rob Lowe's accent is so broad and so fake. And <laughs> Honestly, I'm surprised he wasn't wearing a seersucker suit yeah, in yeah, the yeah, meeting. Yeah, like yeah. That, that, yeah. I wasn't even surprised. Like, well, I reckon you might have some, po- your polling is soft on this, okay? You know, like it, it's. <laughs> It's, yeah, it's, not, let me put it this way. As we say, lots of good small performances. I don't know what they were doing with Rob Lowe. That was not a good performance by him, you know. And yeah. and really, actually, it's impressive he got the role in the West Wing after this performance. True that. Oh, man. I almost wish we could do West Wing, like, <laughs> on this show. It is, in some ways, science fiction. Um <laughs> I have strong feelings about that show. Fair Not enough. all of them positive. Dan, this was this was fun. Yes. Like I said, I almost want to recommend it. I, I think it's an interesting movie if you are over a certain age to go back and look at. Yes, I agree. Yeah. And it's it's an easy watch. Mm-hmm. I did find... I will now admit that I was surfing the web during the last 30 minutes or so. <laughs> Anna. <laughs> but that's the exciting moment where he, she meets her dad again. Yeah. <laughs> I know. I will take this moment to remind people that if you are not a patron, consider becoming one. Yeah, please. Um, the, the main thing, we have merch, not much. It's fulfilled by Patreon. Um, we are, I got mocked on the Discord. Usually we mock you, Dan, but uh, <laughs> I got mocked on the Discord for talking about merch when there really isn't any. Oh, no. I promise it is forthcoming. Okay. But to me, if I was not a person who made the podcast, the main reason I'd be a patron is for the Discord. It is a wonderful community, some really interesting people mm-hmm. on it, lots of different professions represented. There's like cool kinds of expertise that come up. Uh, one of our fans is a toy designer. Oh, cool. Like, yeah, you, Dan doesn't hang out on the Discord. Okay, I'm going to point out that the last time I went on the Discord, there was someone who was a little too stalkery for me, but like I was I'm going to, you know. <laughs> but 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 I, I'm going to take that as a joke and just, you know, I will I, I, will I feel very, very confident in yes. saying that we are gently ribbing you, Dan. Okay, fair like, enough. I'm yeah. the one who had the idea that if we make fun of Dan, he'll be forced to come <laughs> oh, and defend himself. Oh, okay, so that's how it goes. Okay, all right. But now maybe I should say, well, I'll be nice to Dan, but then maybe you'll think that's stalkery. Anyway. Um, become a patron or tell your friends and neighbors and until next time Dan keep this channel open for more